morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is historical novelist Fiona Davis. Fiona interviewed me in 2020 when my novel Escaping Dreamland was published, and I devoured her novel The Lines of Fifth Avenue at that time, and now I get to interview her about her latest New York novel, The Magnolia Palace. Fiona, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to see you again. So The Lions of Fifth Avenue is set in the New York Public Library. Magnolia Palace moves us a little farther uptown uh, to what is now the Frick Museum. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with New York City and why you think it's a great place to set a novel. Yeah, the, the New York City in general, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know, it's it's part of it is that as you wander around, there's so many of these old buildings. And I just can't help but wonder, you know, the generations of stories that are inside them. Mm -hmm. I'm always curious how a building has changed over time, how its residents have changed over time. And I think honestly, the idea of setting a book in a building is just an excuse for me to go in and snoop around. <laughs> <laughs> and do you do you live in New York? I do. I've I've lived in New York for about 35 years now, so it's mm -hmm. pretty much home. I mean, I think I think it is a, to me, there's there's just such variety in what you see in the city and so many different interesting er, historical eras. Um, how, this this book is a little bit later than um, Lions of Fifth Avenue. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Not much, but just a little bit. It, yeah. it, the early part of it takes place in 1919. So did you find did you almost feel like, OK, now I'm sort of moving forward through history from from my previous work? Yeah, I think so. You know, each book has two timelines and I try to set them in very different eras. And so for this book, I set it in 1919 because it made sense. It was when Henry Clay Frick, who built the Frick mansion, died. And so I knew it was a dynamic year in terms of his family. Yeah, yeah. And then I chose the 1960s for the second timeline because I hadn't worked in it before. Yeah, yeah. It was something new and, and something new to play with. So I, I try to move it around with each book. Right, right. So yours, your, New York is a city that's always been known, I think, as, as a city with sort of a thriving art scene. And, and this novel begins, as you said, in 1919 um, with an artist model. And we're going to talk about the model in just a minute. But she's living in what was then the sort of bohemian Upper West Side. Um, tell us about what was the art scene in New York City like in, in 1919? Yeah, you know, at the time when this model was was very successful, there were all these amazing sculptors and they were being commissioned to do sculptures that are, are now all over New York City. So at Columbus Circle or in front of the plaza, it was just the style of the period, a very neoclassical style. And they were looking for women with that kind of beauty, which my character in, in real life, the one that's inspired by her um, had. And so while downtown in Greenwich Village in the in the early part of, of that century was very artistic and, and bohemian, it almost became commercial to yeah. the point where, you know, I remember reading about how someone 
created a, a, a group of artist studios and would offer tours, paid tours to people to see the Bohemians, <laughs> right? And so the artists started moving uptown and they, a lot of them settled in the West 60s, which is where the story really starts out. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, as a, as somebody who loves spending time on the Upper West Side when I'm visiting in New York, I just, I keep thinking, are they going to stop off at Zabar's? Are they going to go up to Barney Greengrass? <laughs> and some of those, some of those places were there in, in the 1920s. So that's, you know, it, that's one of the things I love about the city, how, how the eras sort of intersect with each other. Um, so your novel is one of these novels, and, and this was true of, of all your books, I think, and I love this about them, that like sends me running to Wikipedia about every six pages to, to look at a piece of artwork that you're describing or to uh, try to find out something else about, about one of your characters. And this, this model that we begin with in 1919, um, it was, as you said, it's based on a real person. Um, she's Lillian is based on a woman named um, Audrey Munson, which I figured out about 30 pages into the book. I was like, who is this person? And this is a person who, probably none of my listeners have ever heard of and virtually all of my listeners have seen, yes. uh, which is just, just I thought, amazing. Tell us about, about Audrey Munson and, and why she was considered sort of America's first supermodel. Yeah, sure. So I first encountered her when I took a tour of the Frick and her, she's a reclining nude has been carved into stone above the entrance to the Frick. Mm -hmm. And that is Audrey Munson. And so I Googled her and went down this incredible rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a very celebrated artist muse in the early 1900s. She posed for all the top sculptors and her image can be found all over Manhattan. Like I said, you know, the Brooklyn Museum, um, the Fireman's Memorial, the Titanic Memorial. She's everywhere because she was stunning. She had these you know, thick, dark hair, an aquiline nose, a small chin, very heavy-lidded eyes, narrow shoulders, curvy hips. She was just the ideal beauty. And she had this stunning career. And then there was this terrible scandal where her landlord killed his wife and she was caught up. The police found a, an ad of her in a bathing suit in his possessions and decided, oh, it was a love triangle, which it doesn't seem like it was. And she and her mother fled upstate she eventually tried to commit suicide. She tried to get into film that went very badly. And in the end, her mother put her in asylum where she died in 1996 at the age of 104 and was buried at that time in an unmarked grave. I mean, you can't write a novel and have it be so interesting and tragic. However, I wanted my character Lillian to have a different trajectory, which is why I created a, a fictional character inspired by Audrey Munson. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because you you tread this, I think, this very interesting ground of of taking a real person, and you kind of you're pretty true to Audrey's story up to the point of this murder that you that you mentioned to, and then you then you take her in a new direction. What, why did you want to to Why did you want to do that? What what was the impetus for like okay, now this is the point at which I want her story to turn away from from reality. You know, before I'd heard about Audrey, I was doing research into Helen Frick, the daughter of Henry, who was in her early 20s at that time. And she was another fascinating creature. And I, I just thought, here are these two women who have been overshadowed by the men in their lives and really in many ways lost to history. And I started wondering, as, an, as a writer, you know, you get these kind of visions. And, and I started imagining what would it have been like if this free-spirited 
artist's model and muse met this very prickly temperamental Helen Frick. And both these women are connected by this mansion, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I just had an image of one of the early scenes of Lillian being standing outside, looking at her image and thinking, what's gonna become of me as my life has fallen apart. And someone coming out of the mansion and saying, hey, you know, you're late, hurry up, get inside. And she gets pulled in and realizes she's been mistaken for an applicant for the private secretary to Helen Frick. And that was really the impetus for the whole story. It just kind of came to me as I was standing there. And so that's where I decided to use both those women and explain very clearly in the, in the author's note what's fact and what's, fact, what's fiction. Yeah, we, we talk about the author's note quite a bit on this podcast for because I, I, <laughs> as a historical novelist myself, we tend to have others on there. And um, but what I will tell the readers is like, don't read the author's note until you finished reading this, because it's just such a great story that you've woven. And it is fascinating to know what's true and what's not true. But to me, it's more of an adventure if if that's something you find out, you know, afterwards rather than before you started reading. I, for me, it was exciting to, to be to discover Audrey Munson on my own, you know, and go, oh, okay, now where's she going to take her? Um, so Lillian, the, the character who's based on Audrey, she begins this novel at a, at a very difficult point in her life. Not only is she being accused of being involved in this love triangle that led to this murder, and she's got to leave her apartment, and her mother has died not too long ago, um, but she's also at age 21 sort of considered over the hill um, for, for her profession. Talk about how you created her at the outset in such a way that left room for a really rich character arc? Yeah, you know, I like to have characters who really start out at a low point uh, <laughs> because they have to use everything in their arsenal to try and improve their lives and, and overcome whatever gets thrown their way. And I love the idea of this fish out of water, this artist's model working in this mansion that is a family of three served by a staff of 27. And she's just one of the staff. And you know, what a tough, what a tough situation to be in. Yet in that way she can hide out from, from the scandal and from the police. And, and so, you know, for me, having her start there and having to transform herself, which is what she did as a model, with every sculptor, she had to become a different character. And so becoming the private secretary to Helen Frick is just another version of that. And can she pull it off? So um, as you alluded to before, Lillian's not the only um, model who's in this novel. You have another model who comes to New York City in 1966. She comes from, from Britain, from, you know, it's the mod 60s, it's, it's the Beatles, it's the Stones. What do, you, what do you see as the key differences and similarities in the New York City of 1919 and the New York City of, of 1966 that you wanted to sort of tease out? Oh, that's great. That's a really good question. I love to show how the city has changed over time. And in fact, with that one, with that timeline, I decided to give myself a couple of really tight constrictions where it's a limited number of characters, a limited timeline and a limited location. So you really don't get to know the outside world much at all, uh, only from the point of view of Joshua and kind of the context of the art and, and art history. So in a way, it, it, I don't compare and contrast as much in this book as I have in other ones in a lot of ways. But the way the Frick Mansion has changed in that it was this artist residence or, or this you know, house for this very wealthy family who had a lot of family drama going on. 
And then it's this museum where people come and look at the art that feels like it's just frozen in time. I loved that. I loved comparing that especially. Yeah. And these, um, I mean, the two characters themselves, they, you know, how, how, what would you say they have in common and, and what are their, what are their key differences? Because I, I found it very interesting the way you drew these contrasts between two people who have pursued the same career, find themselves in the same house, but under sort of wildly different circumstances. Yeah. So the, the, the character in the sixties, Veronica is this London model who's doing this Vogue fashion shoot at the Frick that goes terribly wrong. And she gets trapped inside during a three-day snowstorm. And she's just starting out in her career, really. So that's a good contrast to Lillian in the 1910s, who is at the height, was at the height of her career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Veronica's inexperienced, not quite sure how she fits into the whole thing, a little ambivalent about being a model and, and whether or not she really deserves to be there. Whereas Lillian, you know, was celebrated and, and lauded and has, has all this confidence that only got lost after the scandal. And so they're very different in that way. And they're both questioning about what it's like to be looked at versus what it's like to be seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's really both of their trajectories is how, how do I make people see who I really am and not just the image that they want to see. And I feel like they both come into this house, um, I mean, or approach this house, you know, because Lillian doesn't think she's going to go in. Um, thinking that their experience is going to be one thing and then it becomes something very different. I mean, Veronica becomes something, I don't want to give too much away here, but she becomes something much more than just a model who's there for a photo shoot. Lillian becomes something much more than just someone who stops to look at, at her image on the, on the pediment. Um, what is, is it, do you feel like it's that space that does that to those characters? Is it just the story that you wanted to write? What is it, what is it that sort of makes them so much different than what their expectations were? Yeah, you know, I think with any book, you wanna take the reader on a real journey mm -hmm. where the character transforms, the people around her are transformed. And so you can see how they've grown as people over the storyline. And, and so for both of them, they have this really huge arc of starting in one place and then ending up in another that, you know, is, is hopefully very different and that they had to draw on all their inner reserves to get to that place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's really how, how I work at it is how do I get them from point A to point Z really? So the character that, that Veronica interacts with the most probably is, um, Tell us, tell us about, I found him a, probably one of the most interesting of the minor, I guess you could say minor characters in, in the novel, um, Joshua. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. So, you know, as I was writing the book, it was in, the tw in 2020 when a lot of America was in a lot of turmoil. And it started me wondering about what's missing from very Eurocentric art history, and that is diverse perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, I started calling and, and reaching out and interviewing black curators and art world experts to find out what their experiences were like. And it's a tough thing to break into the art world, never mind if you're a person of color. Yeah. And they talked about what they went through. And so I created Joshua who's black and who is an intern there. He wants to be a curator and he's named after the first, uh, considered the first black painter in America, Joshua Johnson, who was painted affluent whites in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And he gives a larger context to the art on the walls at the Frick. He knows the art really well, so he's helpful in that scavenger hunt. But at the same time, he kind of opens 
opens up Veronica's eyes to the point of view of the family and, and the greater art world and, and what's missing from that. And that is the missing stories of, of black artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the other similarities that struck me about, again, about these two models in these two different time periods is they, they both have undergone the loss of a parent. Um, how, how did, why did you want to do that? How do you feel that shaped their characters? Um, you know, I, I lost a parent early in my life. I've written about characters who've lost parents. Sometimes I don't realize that I've done that until like after the novel is published and people point <laughs> yeah. it out to me. Um, yeah. But but what what was it about that, that for these two characters that that drew you in that direction? Yeah, well, you know, in the 1919 story, as I did research into that era, of course, the Spanish flu was a huge, you know, issue back in 1818. And in fact, the, the last wave of it hit early 1919. And I think because we were in the pandemic, I wanted to allude to it without having the book be all about that. And I, I also wanted that character to be very much alone so that she doesn't have any other alternatives at, at the point of the, the beginning of the book. And so having her mother pass away from the Spanish flu, really her anchor is gone because yeah. her mother was helped her throughout her career and was there to keep her safe. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a way that makes her very vulnerable. And for Veronica, having lost a, a parent a, a little bit before the book begins, yeah. again, it means she has to take care of her family in a way that, you know, normally her father would have. And it, it, it puts her under a lot of pressure, which is really great for a character in a, in a fictional novel. Yeah, I think the background of Veronica, she has a, she has a is it a twin sister who is, yeah. who's been institutionalized and she wants to, you know, raise money so that she won't have to be living in this institute. You know, it really, as you said, it really sort of ups the the weight on her shoulders. This backstory of it's not just a job; it's not just a little money. It's like changing the direction of her family. Yes, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's awful to do to characters. You know, I think as writers, yeah. <laughs> we're we're awfully we're we're not very kind. Uh, but it makes for a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one other thing that that kept rolling through my mind is I'm thinking about these two different. Um, time periods, and I'm thinking about you know Vogue magazine, 1966, and a statue out in front of the Plaza Hotel or, or at Columbus Circle. Uh, and I'm reading a novel. I'm thinking about the the different literary context, the literary styles of the era. I mean, I know Ulysses was published in the 1920s, but you know if you think about the contrast between say Edith Wharton and Hunter S. Thompson, that's <laughs> a that 40 years is is gigantic. Um, how did your own writing style um, sort of incorporate those different time periods? Yeah, you know, when I'm writing the older time period, I my parents are both English, and so I tap into the way my mother speaks, mm -hmm. which is just a tiny bit more formal than the way we talk today. And that helps ground those characters and that, that dialogue in that time period. And for, for Veronica, it was fun to, to do a 60s model with a really crazy haircut yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's what gets her noticed. And at the time, that's what was, you know, very hip and, and happening, but she's a little ambivalent about it. And so just creating her, her image visually as something that's as completely different from Lillian as you could get yeah. uh, helped to, to make those two very separate people, even though they do the same job. Yeah. 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 Lillian grew up, um, finding the female form, as you say, neither beautiful nor obscene. Um, let's talk about modeling for just a minute. And, and especially today in our, in our society, 
do do you think that modeling like Lillian and Veronica's modeling is can sort of objectify and demystify at at the same time? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you know, for for Lillian modeling in the 1910s, while while she is very comfortable doing it because because the artists are using her as a model for art mm -hmm. and for something that they hope will be lasting and beautiful and and which was because of that she is very grounded in what she does but she understands <clears throat> that the rest of society does not think so yeah anyone who takes off their clothes in front of a man who is not their husband that is scandalous yeah and so she's walking this weird line where she's a, a part of fine art yet looked down on by society as, you know, kind of trashy. And, and yeah, I think today I can't imagine what it's like to be a model today, <clears throat> just to be always have people looking at you and how you look and have that be the most important thing. And Veronica in the book is really questioning whether that will work for her, you know, to, and, and also I think it's so hard as you get older of what happens when you are celebrated as this beautiful young thing what happens when you're 40 and 50 and 60 and people look at you differently. Yeah. And, and Lillian too has this, um, you know, I think we now think of model modeling as primarily sort of a commercial endeavor. People model in order to be on the cover of a magazine, to sell clothes, to sell products, um, not so much to inspire public sculpture, you know, um, but Lillian kind of straddles that line because she, Yes, she she is an artist model, but she also shows up in in commercial things as well. Can can you sort of address that a little bit about how how that how the idea of modeling evolved over over the twentieth century? Yeah, and and you know for the actual character, the actual person, Audrey Munson, <clears throat> she started out as this beautiful artist model for sculptures and that were considered public works, and you know how incredible. But as things got harder, she would have to do things like ads for bathing suits. Yeah. And then eventually she tried to break into the film industry where she was basically naked running around these films, which did not go over well. And, and she just could never kind of break out of being seen as a, a woman of beauty as opposed to an actress or someone with a serious nature. So it really was difficult, very, very difficult for her. Well, we've been talking about two of the main characters in this book, uh, but there are others, and I would argue that one of the main characters in this book uh, is a building now known as the Frick Museum uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Uh, I, I was in New York a month or so ago, and I remember running past the facade when I was in Central Park. And, I, you know, one of the challenges and, and rewards, I think, of writing historical fiction is the chance to bring a really specific setting sometimes a setting like this that still exists to life in, in a previous era. How did you approach the challenge of taking this building that you can walk into now, uh, that's a museum and, and moving it back into the late teens and early twenties? Yeah, for a lot of it was getting inside and getting a behind the scenes tour of mm -hmm. all the different floors so I could see what the layout was and, and it still feels very much like it was back then. And, and so that helped a lot. And then it's just doing tons of research and, and making it feel like it's my home, you know? So I, I get inside and I can, even if I had to do it virtually because of the lockout, I could get inside through their website and look at a 360 degree view of each room as I was working. And that helped 
so much as well. And it's just learning about the family that lived there, the era that it was there, and, and you know, walking by, just like you said, and studying it, trying to figure out how, how it worked as a house and then how it worked as a museum. Did, were you able, are you able to find, is there documentation about when it was a house, you know, this painting was hanging on this wall in this room? Because there's a lot of sort of key things in this novel about where a certain painting is or a certain artifact. Right, yes, as part of the scavenger hunt. Uh, and well, what's great about the, the Frick website and also their archivists were really helpful mm -hmm. um, in sending me things like dinner party menus from 1915, yeah. or I could see photos of the rooms that were the bedrooms that are now not public and that are now offices. So I could get a really good sense of what the, the rooms looked like after Mr. Frick died. And, and you know, what, what was his bedroom like? What was his study like? Oh, there was a piano there. Okay, and that, that all of that really affects the scenes as I write them. Yeah. And, um, and they also had things like payrolls. So I could see a list of all the staff, what they were paid, who they were, what they did. And again, that just helps, those details help bring, bring the building to life. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of mansions um, that have been turned into art museums. I, I live in Winston-Salem. We have a great art museum that was once a mansion. Um, but the Frick is the only one that I know of that's a private residence that was built with the intention of eventually being a, an art museum. How did that idea shape the building itself? And, and how did it make it a particularly apt place for a, a narrative to take place? Yeah, when Mr. Frick had it built, uh, it opened in 1914. His whole plan was that after he passed away, it would be left to the city. And so the building cost about $5 million to build, which today would be $80 million. Mm -hmm. So he really took some time and, and he explained to the architect that he wanted it to be simple and conservative in every way. So that the, the prominent thing in every room and every hallway would be the paintings that he'd collected. Mm -hmm. He collected Rembrandt's, Turner's, Renoir. There are 34 Vermeers in the world and the Frick has three of them, Yeah, yeah, which is pretty incredible. And so, Amazing. you know, at, at, at the back, there's this huge room that normally in a building built at that time, it would be the ballroom, but he had it built as an art gallery. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew what, where he was headed and it, it really served the city as they took it over and turned it into a museum because the intention was always there. So for him, did the, did the art, did he start collecting art and then build the house or do you build the house and then start filling it up with art? Yeah, he, you know what, he lived in, he grew up in Pennsylvania and made his first million by the age of 30. He started collecting art uh, pretty early on. He bought his first Rembrandt in 1899, his first Vermeer in 1901. But at that time they lived in Pittsburgh. The family was in Pittsburgh. And it wasn't only until the early 1900s that he decided they should move to New York and he had first moved here and lived in one of the Vanderbilt houses. He rented it as his house was being built. And, and so, yeah, it, you know, by then he had an extensive art collection and the whole thing was building all the rooms around the artwork and knowing where it should go and what should hang where. Mm -hmm. Now, he, you know, Frick and, and his daughter, Helen, who both figure very prominently in the novel, um, did a lot of great things for New York City for the art world, but they're you know they're not unalloyed great people. There's there's some some major character flaws, I guess you would say. Um, how do you um, how do you incorporate those, and also how do you sort of balance the historical real person 
with the character that you really need to drive forward your novel? Yeah, it, it's it's difficult. I mean, for me, I love people who are flawed because it makes it very interesting to write about them. Frick was a very generous man in many ways. He was also a major union buster. Yeah. Uh, and and there are a couple major issues in his life that were his fault. Um, and and but he was just so rich, you know, nothing really ever touched him. Yeah. And his daughter Helen, the same thing. She was a little prickly and temperamental and didn't really get along with many people. And she was known for, you know, dropping her friends if they bobbed their hair and she wore a pompadour and bun her entire life. Yeah. You know, she, she, they were both really interesting. It was an interesting father daughter dynamic. And so it, for me, that makes it really fun to write about because what are their vulnerabilities? You know, what are their strengths? What do they want? And that hopefully infuses itself into the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, this this story takes place at a time when women had just gotten the vote. Women's roles in some strata of society are are starting to change. But it seems to, to a certain extent that women in wealth are sort of more stuck in their roles of the previous generation than, than women in other uh, socioeconomic um, groups. Tell us a little bit more about Helen Frick and how she sort of challenged that idea. Yeah, Helen Frick, when her father died in 1919, was left $38 million, which made her the richest unmarried woman in America. And so in a way she had so much, but in other ways, I think she, she was very constricted in, in her viewpoints a lot of, in a lot of ways. She, there was a New Yorker profile of her in 1939 that described her as a woman of extremely robust prejudices, <laughs> <laughs> which was putting it kindly. And, and I think, she, after her father died, especially, she was very insistent that her father's wishes be honored in the, in the museum. And she fought like crazy with the board. And I think drove them all nuts until she finally resigned in the 1960s. But she, she was just a hard, hard woman to, to get to know at the same time, had done some amazing things, including building the Frick Art Reference Library, which is the top art reference library in the world. So she did so much good but apparently she was tough to get along with. Yeah, yeah. At one point um, in the in the modern storyline, you have a character that gets locked in the Frick overnight, which is just like, you know, everybody's fantasy. I immediately um, went a little bit farther along Fifth Avenue and across the street to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and flashback to the, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, which is one of my favorite books growing up. Um, what museum would you like to spend the night in? Oh, what a great question. You know what? There is a museum in England, in London, actually, called the, I think it's the John Sloan Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, not well known, but it, it was uh, a residence. And it's just full of quirky things. And I'd love to spend a night there just looking around because you could spend days there and not see everything. Yeah, I, I've never been to the Sloan, but I've read about it. And apparently every room is just packed with weird stuff uh yeah there's yeah. there's definitely something appealing about uh, a collector who did not have focus you know uh, yes, yes. Uh, so you have um you, you talked a little bit about this before about about finding things like dinner party menus um but you do have uh, amazing details of the everyday um not not just in um the museum but in other parts of lillian's life in in artists, uh, studios and everything. How, how, do, how do you, you know, it's easy to discover the details of like 
the career of a famous robber baron, it's a little harder to find out like what was it like to just walk around the streets of New York or to go into an artist studio 103 years ago. How, how did you research those sorts of everyday things? You know, one thing helped with that was uh, there was a wonderful book on Audrey Munson, a, a biography that's written called The Curse of Beauty. And that gave me so many specifics. It gave me how much she was paid, who she worked for. It, it, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. And, um, and so finding books like that that give me the specifics are what really help because otherwise it's so hard to know what it, what it would have been like. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever find yourself, I, I've had a situation where I find myself going down a rabbit hole trying to find one little piece of, the one I remember from Escaping Dreamland was how much does it cost to ride the L from you know here to there? And I just looked and looked and looked for probably two days and never found the answer. Do you, do you ever have those sorts of rabbit holes where you finally decide, well, if I can't figure it out, then the reader will never call me on it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But every book, there's like three things like that where, all right, I have to figure this out. How do I do it? How do I find it? Yeah. I, I'm with you. It, and that's the most frustrating thing when, you know, you want to find out a dinner menu from a restaurant in a certain time period. And, yeah. and you, it's, it's tough. It's really hard. I mean, I will say one thing about researching New York is that it is such a well-documented city. You mentioned that dinner menus, and I had this use this collection as well, but there's a collection of restaurant menus at the New York Public Library. It's just this yes. one lady collected like thousands of them over a period of 50 or 60 years. And, you know, any one of those, I think it's a great lesson about collecting and archiving. And you read about archiving in this book that a lot of times any one of those archival items is insignificant in and of itself. But when you put together thousands of them, it, it tells this real part of of history. What are the archives at the Frick like? Did you get to actually go into the archives? You know, we were in lockdown, so they they sent them to me. Mm -hmm. And and they're they're just great. And again on the website, there's so many, you can actually access things pretty easily. But yeah, they were sending me so many wonderful photographs and, and documents. It really helped round out the the story for me, which was great. Yeah. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a word or two, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into you and to your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Peripatetic. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Any word that I don't know and have to stop and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? In my home office in New York City. Where could you never write? In a coffee shop. I have too many books and things that I have to bring with me. People would be very upset. Yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? <laughs> uh, probably using M dashes within a, a sentence. Yeah. Too many of them. What's the first book you remember reading? Oh, um, probably the, oh gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, the earliest books were the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that yeah. I really loved. Yeah. What are you reading now? I am reading now The Maid by Nita Prose. What book would you like to have written? Oh. I loved um, People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A, a Like a Jennifer Egan type book yeah. where 
where you're just doing so many things at once and walking such a tightrope. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they they loved the book and that it made them go down a rabbit hole on <laughs> what really happened and what didn't. Yeah. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Fiona Davis, whose novel, The Magnolia Palace, is available wherever books are sold. Fiona, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. This was so much fun. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Josie Silver about her new novel, One Night on the Island. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) ¶¶